We need to read Paul in his historical context. He's not addressing all women. He's addressing a particular group of women. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollandsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Good day, friends and family. Thanks, James, for that wonderful introduction. I'm Heath Hollinsby, and this is another edition of Heath in Pursuit podcast. Today, I've got a very special guest with me. Her name's Amanda Bankhausen, and she just wrote a book called The Gospel According to Eve, with a subtitle, A History of Women's Interpretation. And uh, I actually found it to be quite fascinating, because uh, the book publisher emailed me and said, hey, we've got some new books coming out. Any of these look appealing to you? And I said, oh, yeah, send me that one. She has a PhD from the University of St. Michael's College in Toronto, And she actually works in Grand Rapids at Calvin Theological Seminary, where she's a researcher in biblical interpretation and reception history. And uh, this book was really good. It was one that, as a man, I needed to read. And uh, there were many times where I got stopped in my own tracks. But again, the book is called The Gospel According to Eve. And the guest is Amanda Bankhausen. Amanda, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. You know, today we're going to talk about your new book, which is The Gospel According to Eve, and the subtitle is A History of Women's Interpretation. And um, the way I heard about this book was that uh, the publisher, InterVarsity, uh, often sends out the new releases to me. And, and this one was something that I thought, man, I could really use some schooling in this field. Um, and the reason I'm so fascinated by your book is because in reading it, it caused me to stop and think about how often I've blindly absorbed information, mostly mm-hmm. about, like, it's mostly out of ignorance, but your book didn't let me sit comfortably with that anymore. And in the tradition mm-hmm. I was raised in, women were, though it wouldn't be maybe said verbally, they were inferior to men in the way that they were positioned. They, uh, we heard comments like, hey, they're created to serve, or they're, help, they're here to help the man fulfill the dreams that God's placed in his heart. But one of the things that I love about the book is you start off by talking about how often what we've heard about Eve was through the interpretation of men, and I began to feel uncomfortable like I was being ripped off because (laughs) the scope's been so narrow, and then I started thinking that you're right. Most of the people that have taught me about the women's role was from the men that were pastors in my life or leaders, and so... Maybe we could start by you giving us a bit of another way to read Eve specifically through Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, For those of us who've always kind of read it through this rib bone borrowing servant to Adam sort of lens. Yeah, sure. Well, let me just say, um, it had never occurred to me, actually, that I was also receiving the interpretation of this story uh, through the lens of men that like I, yeah. I just sort of assumed that the interpretation that had been passed along to me was uh, a, a standard interpretation of this text. It never occurred to me to think, oh, this is also um, coming through a particular lens or perspective sure. uh, that I uh, there might be other perspectives on this text that I might want to consider. So. Um, part of writing this book was when I was doing research on the Genesis 1 through 3 and the history of interpretation, 
and coming across one woman who interpreted it quite differently, who actually didn't think that Eve um, would didn't have sort of a negative portrayal of Eve as uh, someone who was inferior or subordinate to men. And then um, Genesis 3, which obviously talks about the fall into sin, um, the disobedience of both Adam and Eve in um, eating of the fruit. But sure. most uh, traditional interpretations have sort of leaned heavily on Eve in terms of blaming her for that act and leading mm-hmm. Adam into sin. And what I discovered was this woman uh, in the 14th century came to the conclusion, came to very different conclusions about the character of Eve. Uh, So Hmm. that instead of thinking of her as uh, someone who was inferior, for instance, uh, to Adam, because she was made from Adam's rib, this woman said, well, wait a minute, she was created last, which seems to make her the crowning glory of God's creation. And instead of thinking of her as um, um, uh, derivative of Adam, because she was made from the rib, she said, well, Adam was made from the ground. So if Adam, if Eve is derivative of Adam, then Adam is derivative of the ground. And that doesn't make Adam subordinate to the ground. So why does um, being created from Adam make Eve subordinate to Adam? And so she just sort of questioned all the things that, um, all the interpretations that I had sort of absorbed and accepted as hmm. um, a part of a a reader of scripture over time. And so um, I began to dig a little more into the history of interpretation and realized there were more women actually who wrote on this text in history and pushed back in different ways. Um, They felt like what they they read in Eve, what they heard in this story was um, that God had particularly blessed Eve, um, not that she was um, inferior or a secondary creation, but that she was created um, to be Adam's helper in the sense of someone who would come alongside Adam and be his companion in life. They emphasized companionship a lot. Um, And what they saw was not differentiation between male and female in those chapters so much as differentiation between uh, human beings and the animals. And so it's um, they saw when Eve was created, she was created uh, and received by Adam as this incredible creature who was like himself, um, Hmm. not someone who was different, which was what Adam had experienced prior to this. And so that what we get with Adam saying, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, this little dance of joy (laughs) and Adam saying, yay, finally, I found one who is like myself, someone who can be my partner in life. So they really saw that in this text Um, uh, and, and other things as well. But that just sort of gives you a flavor for how they saw this text differently. One of the lines that you said in in the book and was that um, when you were talking about the 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 worth element of mm. women, and you had mentioned that there's clothing ads and media regarding beauty and these narratives that are constantly placing uh, the worth of a woman in people's head, and it, it's been for quite some time. And you even mentioned that throughout history, 
In literature and art, the depiction of women has often been constructed almost exclusively by male artists right. and authors. And there's this haunting line that you say, their characterizations of women often reflect more about their own fantasies and fears than about the female sex. And that was mind-blowing to me. And I'm, and I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that I've never even really considered this. But what you're referring to now, uh, I think that when you're saying like Scripture provides this beautiful narrative as to the worth of a woman, because in Eve being from Adam, it wasn't a less substantial form of man, but that it was a more, it wasn't her inferiority, but her superiority, like the seed is inferior to the thing which emerges from it. And so I'm wondering what an alternate reading of Genesis 1 teaches us about the worth that is placed specifically on the female sex. Yeah, so um, I'm glad you mentioned Genesis 1, because um, part of what the women in, in my book observed is that interpreters would start with Genesis 2 or Genesis 3 even to sort of think about the characterization of Eve and then jump to, well, how this applies or how this helps us understand women in general, the nature and role of women. And the women in the book who interpreted Eve in history were um, insistent that instead of starting with Genesis 2 or Genesis 3, you need to start with Genesis 1. And the reason you need to start with Genesis 1 is because it changes the way you read Genesis 2 and 3. So that in Genesis 1, for instance, we have, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So that both male and female are created in the image of God and bear the image of God. And so they start there. They start with this notion that both men and women have this value and this dignity and this worth as human beings, that they have been endowed by that, um, with that by their creator. And then, um, I love this part, they actually noted that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And um, that's that commission is uh, comes out in some of uh, the women's writings in the sense of, well, if women were given the same commission as men to rule over the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, then women would have to step off the earth to transgress uh, their, uh, their sphere or uh, what their role is supposed to be. In other words, oh, wow. just as everything, the whole earth and the, 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 all of um, life was sort of given to Adam as something to invest in and give himself to and um, uh, co-create in terms of culture, so that was true of women as well, right? Like they were mm. also given that role. And so yeah. to be culture makers and um, yeah, so they picked up on that and then they began to read the rest of scripture, um, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and then also the Pauline texts through that mm. lens. So they start with this notion that God has... Um, Val has given women just alongside with men uh, value and dignity and worth. Yeah, oh, that's so beautiful. You know, I'm a, a huge fan, and I and I didn't see this for years, but uh, 
we talked a little bit offline before we started recording about how I went through this uh, reformed, angry Calvinist phase, and, and <laughs> the premise of that is you start with tulip and the total depravity, right. and <laughs> and when you when you start with Genesis three, you chop the bookend off the front of the te- you you chop off the imago day that we are image bearers, and so and that changes the whole narrative of scripture because if we start with depravity, then we need a savior to fix it, and that. And you lose the whole sense of like, no, we we are image bearers, and every single person you look at is reflecting an element of God, male or female, regardless of color or age or status. Or, and so I do think starting at Genesis one, you have to start. There's no option to start anywhere else. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And exactly. They the women that I studied, they would they would completely affirm that. And in fact, actually, some of them said they thought they suspected that when people thought about men and male roles and male the nature of men they would they would appeal to genesis 1 but when they thought about hmm. women for whatever reason they would revert to genesis 3 and so um, that's <laughs> where they felt the tension like that somehow that they had not been honored as also image bearers of God. One of the comments or one of the arguments that I've heard is I'm speaking specifically of, an, of a pastor in Idaho that I'm aware of. Sure. Uh, that would say like no it's it's not a worth issue it's you know it's not a fight for equality it's equal in value different in roles yeah. <laughs> uh, and and so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that because I've, I heard that for quite some time is like no the man's role is to do this and the woman's is to do this it doesn't make the woman a second class citizen they're equal in value different in roles yeah. but it seems like uh, a more progressive view is like no, those those roles aren't nearly as divided as maybe we've held to for some time. Yeah. So the women, um, again, that I looked at, they would argue that they had trouble finding in scripture anywhere a delineation of a woman's role. Where does it say that the woman is limited to the private sphere, for instance? And so Um, They were a little bit puzzled by this notion, um, particularly as this has played out in history, that um, it's on that basis that women were denied education and women were denied property. Women were denied the opportunity to have a vocation. Uh, Women were denied the right to vote. Um, And so by the 19th century, early 19th century, women are saying, well, if we're created equal, then it seems to me uh, there are social, political, and legal implications to that equality because we don't see anywhere in scripture where we would be denied that. Like it doesn't say a woman sure. must manage the household. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so they really did push back against those notions. And also um, the uh, they, they weren't quite sure – um, why they should be denied the opportunity to preach, for instance, or have leadership in the church. Yeah. Um, so a lot of them, again, going back to this idea of reading um, the Bible through the lens of Genesis 1, they would start there, and then they would get to these Pauline texts, which may give some indications of um, separate sphere ideology that when men and women have different roles to play in life. And and they would say, but Paul seems to be addressing, um, you know, cultural issues that are happening within their, within the context of the churches to whom he's writing. And so they, it's amazing mm-hmm. to me that 
very early on, so you get this in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, women were already arguing this. They were already saying, we need to read Paul in his historical context and understand Mm. that he's not addressing all women. He's addressing a particular group of women in uh, the churches in Corinth or uh, Ephesus, and he's he's um, recognizing that there are some disruptions going on there, and that he needs to uh, address that for the sake of the gospel, right? Um, but but they yeah. they pushed back against this idea that Paul was actually making these universal statements uh, about women in general. Um, M- Margaret Fell, who is considered the mother of Quakerism. Uh, she, she, um, she said Paul was addressing women who didn't uh, like in, in the Quaker in the Society of, of Friends, um, the way that you you think of people who are people of faith is they have the inner light in them, and she would say hmm. like they don't. These are Paul's addressing women who don't have that inner light. So then they don't have anything to say that contributes to the gospel, right? So Paul's trying to silence them. And the issue then is not that they're women. It's not their gender. It's that they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) It'd be regardless of gender at that point. Yeah, regardless of gender. So, you know, and I I find it fascinating that they're that they name some of these things very early in history that um, they couldn't find in scripture the the text that would support uh, separate sphere ideology. And I go back to this woman, um, Lee Anna Starr. I think she's the one who articulated it so beautifully, who as I referenced earlier, she says, you know, like basically a woman would have to step off the earth to transgress her sphere, given yeah. what we read in Genesis one twenty eight. So I left a church recently and I recognized that I know a lot about Paul and very little about Jesus. And we spent most of the time in the teachings of Paul. Right. Uh, and Paul always needs to be interpreted through the lens of Jesus, I think. I think to remove Paul and, and study him separately outside of Jesus gets us in a really difficult situation. Absolutely. Um, and, and I was thinking as you were talking about like the specific letters of Paul to specific situations, you have that chapter in your book on empowering women to preach and teach. Yeah. And yeah. I spent eight years on, on the road with Joyce Meyer uh, everywhere she went. I, I've toured with Beth Moore in the past who recently just gained a lot of attention by being attacked by an older, wealthy white man who told her to go home instead of to <laughs> preach. Right. It's it's so foolish. And I was raised in this church, as we talked about, that wouldn't allow women to preach or to teach, except for maybe in women's ministry. But I've seen the power of, of Joyce Meyer, I've, of Beth Moore. I've like I've I've actually gained, I appreciate the, the unique approach that they have. Yeah. And so and so is that the same thing you're getting at with women preachers is that he's not saying women should never preach or never teach, but that what we're doing is we're taking a very narrow letter that Paul wrote and we're expanding it to apply to all females everywhere. And by doing that, we're actually doing more harm than anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um and in fact, Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore both stand in a long tradition of women who preach the gospel. I, I think they would probably yeah. even be surprised how uh, far back that history goes of women who 
even with the blessing of the church, went out and preached the gospel. So I, I think it's uh, part of what I was trying to do in the book is recover some historical perspective on these issues, that women preaching yeah. is not a new phenomenon by any uh, stretch of the imagination, that there's a long history of that. Um, it, one of the things that I think is interesting is, yes, the women would point out that Jesus um, certainly affirmed uh, women, um, particularly given the fact that women were the first to announce the resurrection, right? And they were told to go and tell. Yeah. But the women also noted that um, Paul himself affirmed women leadership in the church. And mm. so if you go to Romans 16, for instance, Paul lists all these women yeah. uh, that um, he expresses gratitude for because of their ministry in Christ. And yeah. Um, you know, if you if you read it closely, you realize that actually some of them were deacons and apostles and um, leaders of the church, leaders of house churches and uh, teachers of of the Bible. I mean, these women were doing, it seems, everything. And so when we read these passages, we need to actually reconcile Paul with Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and so it's more than just reconciling two parts of the canon. It's it's trying to come to grips with what was Paul really saying? Because if Paul is affirming women in all these different roles, then these these few texts that sort of address, you know, whether women can speak in church, um, we have to sort of figure out what they mean within this larger context of Paul's um, affirmation of women. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, uh, the interview that I'm doing uh, that'll release next week is with uh, James Payton on the victory of the cross, which is mm-hmm. all about salvation in Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy. And one of the things that he said that that I think we really do a disservice on is when we view the Bible on its own as a canonized book, and we try to, we can pick verses that fit our needs, like, you also have to, to properly interpret Scripture, you don't get away with an individual uh, reading of scripture. You also take into account early church fathers and desert. Fa- I mean, it's a passed down oral tradition. And throughout our history, there have been women leading the charge for such a long time. It really wasn't until, you know, the Calvins and kind of the, this Reformation that this this more of a Western reading of scripture, uh, that women should be silent, that's where, that's where things started to ramp up on quieting women. Uh, but I think we're sitting in the ramifications of it that are just really tragic. And the church has done itself a terrible disservice in not allowing women to lend their voice to these conversations. Yeah. I love um, the work of Catherine Booth, who is the mother of the Salvation Army. And like, Mm. she writes this document to defend the preaching of Phoebe Palmer, who is uh, this woman who seems to be clearly filled with the spirit and, and so she writes this document to defend her sister in Christ. And she asks the question, and I think this is um, just such a haunting question. She says, what if the church is wrong about this? Like, mm. what if the church has been wrong in denying women the opportunity to preach the gospel? Um, yeah. How many women have been hurt by that, have been silenced, have been limited, have not been able to live out the calling that God himself 
has placed on their life? And how has the gospel itself been thwarted because women have not been allowed to do the job that God has appointed for them to do? Um, yeah. So I just, I like, I read that and I was like, I, I mean, I, I am an ordained pastor in the Christian Reformed Church. So obviously I support mm. women in ministry. But when I read sure. that, I thought, okay, that puts a whole new spin on this issue yeah. and a whole new sense of urgency for me about um, having the church have conversations about this, because I, I, I think we need to ask that question. What if we're wrong? Absolutely. It is a really haunting question. And one of the things that I appreciate you speak about was when you were talking about the complicated relationship between women in the church. And you even said that uh, women who were filled with the Spirit and gifted for ministry struggled with the commitment of church authorities, all of whom were male, mm-hmm. to deny women access to the pulpit. Why, they wondered, would the church reject their participation in the proclamation and spread of the gospel? This denial of their calling and rejection of their gifts was not only incredibly hurtful, but it put women in an awkward position of having to choose between social and religious respectability and an obedience to God. And that was just, I mean, that stopped me. I had to put the book down there and think about that. And, And I would just ask you, like, how and what could be done today, maybe specifically by men who have been the unfair gatekeepers for far too long, to help restore the church to what it should be? What do you, like, do you have ideas? Do you have words that you would speak to us? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have a lot of wisdom in this area. I, I think educating ourselves is sort of the first step. Um, beginning to realize, I think, the history of the conversation about men's and women's roles in society and in the church um, is helpful to realize that this is not a new conversation, but it's a conversation that's been going on for a very long time. And it's a conversation that will probably actually need to continue because women have historically been marginalized and silenced. And so kind of changing the narrative is going to take some intentional effort and it's going to take some thoughtfulness on the part of both men and women. Um, The other thing I would say is those who have power and privilege um, that, that, and that tends to be men, but it's not always all men. Um, It's not all men and it's not always men uh, that those who have power and privilege would use that power and privilege to create space for those who don't. Right. And Hmm. um, so in the circles in which I walk, we talk a lot about amplifying voices of Hmm. um, those who have been marginalized in the past. So uh, recognizing that um, other um, population groups might have something to say, they might have a perspective that is different from our own, and inviting their voice into the conversation, intentionally creating space for them. So when it comes to women, um, and particularly this issue about women in the church, I would say, I think, I think it's going to take men sort of raising their voices in advocacy for women and then creating space for women to enter into those spaces of leadership in the church. I mean, I'm going to pull the ignorance card completely, and I know it's not an excuse, but you did talk about um, exposing patriarchy in the yeah. Bible as well. 
Um, and I'm, you know, kind of in the lines of like this gender ideology. And I'm wondering if you can just speak into that a bit, what you were getting at, why you thought that was important to write about, uh, what you've witnessed. It's an area that I'm really curious about and I know I need to grow in. I don't know what that looks like yet for me. <laughs> but maybe you can kind of unpack that a little bit. Well, I, I think it goes to recognizing that um, the, the Bible was not written in the 21st century. It was written in a patriarchal culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we read it closely, it seems to be the case that God is not baptizing that patriarchal culture as something that is good. Instead, he is sort of working through the culture to um, bring about uh, greater equality for women and for all people, actually. So we see this with the issue of slavery as well, that there's not really a condemnation of slavery, but there is a concern for creating better conditions for slaves. And no one, I think, today would read the Bible and say, well, you know, uh, the Bible doesn't really condemn slavery, so it's okay. I think we would recognize that that is part and parcel of the culture out of which the Bible emerges. And so we see God at work bringing redemption in that area, even if it's not as full as we would expect it to be or hope it would be, um, because God works in and through cultures, right? And transformation takes place slowly. And so I would say the same is is true of women, um, that what we need to do is read the Bible with a recognition that this is an ancient text. And so it is going to reflect mm. that uh, culture, that patriarchal culture of the time in which ancient Israel and the Jews of first century Palestine lived. And so um, the yeah. more we can sort of see that in the text, uh, the more we're able to see what what is cultural and how God is at work in that to bring about a fuller picture of shalom and redemption. One of the things that you address is the concept of women being created in the image of God and that there's this mothering side to God that we don't often right. pay any attention to. You know, like there's... Uh, we always see God in our limited knowledge and limited vocabulary. We tend to take a male approach, which I think is quite unfair at times. Um, and the spirit typically you were saying gets the credit for being the feminine side of God, but there is this mothering nature to God. Yeah, as well, and right? One of the things that's really interesting is so in the 19th century, you get people like Catherine Booth and also Francis Willard, who is also a reformer mm-hmm. an activist Um, sort of noting that the hermeneutic by which we have interpreted these texts, particularly about women, is problematic because it is the kind of cherry picking that you referenced earlier, rather than reading within the context of, of the whole canon. And so Francis Willard comes to the conclusion that Um, we will have this propensity to cherry pick, sort of hone in on the texts that are meaningful to us. And she says that's precisely why we need men and women reading the Bible together, why we can't just have one sex or one part of the population reading the Bible and giving some kind of authoritative interpretation. She says if we want the full-orbed truth of Scripture, we need men's and women's voices 
to um, participate in this work of interpretation because we see things differently. We hear them differently. And I think it's true that women are probably more inclined to be um, drawn to those feminine images for God that we find in scripture. And that's a whole area that has, has been um, just underdeveloped, I think, um, in the history of interpretation. So it's a really wise word that it needs to be done together. And, um, and I'm embarrassed, but you know, and one, on one hand, I'm embarrassed that my ignorance has led me to not, you know, 36 years of my life make huge strides in this yet. On the other hand, I'm so hopeful that the conversation's happening and that, um, books like yours are being written, uh, to help have conversations, to help push us out of ignorance. You know, I can't, I can't use, uh, ignorance as a, excuse anymore in reading texts like this. You know, I have to do something. And this in the fullness of God that is brought by women. One of my favorite lines in the book is a quote that says, in the end, Eve is not the inferior and spiritually wayward creature of Christian tradition. Rather, she's our foremother in faith, who instead of being cursed by God, was elevated to the honorable position of an enemy of Satan. And then you go on to say that in this sense, she truly is the mother of all living. That tradition has burdened her in all women, unnecessarily with calls to subordination and limitations on their activities, has very little to do with God's word to women. And and so I'm just wondering, uh, education is obviously um, a great step forward, having conversation, right? Having open and honest conversation, hearing one another. But as we leave kind of the show today, um, and we move forward in our lives in this fight to restore this equality, do you have any closing words or closing hopes? Or I, I guess what I would say to this is uh, there is one woman in the book and she sort of caught my attention. Uh, she's a 19th century interpreter and she caught my attention in part because she's actually not um, in support of suffrage and she's not really a woman's rights kind of person. And I was a little disappointed by that. I wish she was more rah-rah. Mm. You know, <laughs> But she asks a question that I think is, is just, again, so penetrating, so helpful. She says, we shouldn't be asking the question of equality. And I think this is why she doesn't support sort of equal rights for women. She's not into that. She says, what we need to do is ask the question of what does it take for male and female to flourish? And so she mm. switches the conversation. She reframes it from one of equality or equal rights to what would it take for um, women to flourish in this society? What would it take for women to flourish in the church? What would it take mm. for women to flourish in the home? And then you could you know, do the same of men. Um, what would it take for them to flourish? Because I even as we enter into this conversation about women, I think the next step is perhaps the conversation about men and the expectations that we have placed on Christian men um, that create a kind yeah. of toxic environment for them as well. So I'm really hopeful yeah. for the future that we can begin to sort of have those conversations about what would it take for both men and women to flourish. You know, it's almost, it's, you know, to use a biblical term, the helpmate, this is really where we can help, I think, as men help our sisters really flourish is, like you said, providing them a space, providing them an avenue, providing, you know, asking for their insight, asking them to teach, making 
making places for them to teach. And, and uh, this is really a, a way that, that men do need to step up yeah. and be helpmates in the sense of helping our sisters out who for so long have not been given a fair stab at this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Thanks again for being with us. You are so welcome. It's been a pleasure. Again, that guest, Amanda Bankhausen, with her new book, The Gospel According to Eve, A History of Women's Interpretation, is such a fantastic book. It's available at Amazon and kind of anywhere you can go get books, and I'd recommend reading it and pushing through it. And uh, not only is her writing style really fantastic, but she also references so many different female authors throughout her book that if you wanted to deep dive into the history of uh, women in the church and women leadership throughout church history, then that book would be an amazing resource for you. Next week, we're talking with James R. Payton Jr. His book, The Victory on the Cross, Salvation in Eastern Orthodoxy, is going to provide us some really helpful ways uh, to maybe reframe the way we see sin and salvation and what the cross ultimately was about. His knowledge of the Eastern concepts uh, are really going to be helpful for our Western brains. So I hope that you will join us for that episode. See ya! Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.